Hey everyone, I'm Dan Cortler, the host of TED Climate. Each episode, we unpack the problems and solutions of climate change. This season of the show, we're getting into some big ideas that make us optimistic about the future, like meat grown from cells and leather made from mushrooms. And the best part? We look at how building a greener future can be an upgrade instead of a sacrifice. Find and follow TED Climate wherever you're listening to this. This is a CBC Podcast. Hi, I'm Bob McDonald. Welcome to Quirks and Quarks. On this week's show, NASA goes metal. Scientists are thrilled as a new mission to an unusual metallic asteroid blasts off. I've actually been in this field for over two decades, and it's the first opportunity I had to see a launch live. You just light the fuse and it goes. And hippos have enormous jaws, but their huge teeth can't really chew. Now in the hippos, they don't glide across each other. They just go hump, hump, up and down, which means they just can squeeze the stuff, but not grind it. Plus, a cicada boom will be a boon for birds and a bust for forests. How the music moves us. And the risks with the rewards of deep sea mining. All this today on Quirks and Quarks. Six, five, four, three, two, one. Engine ignition. And liftoff. Liftoff of Falcon Heavy and Psyche on a mission to a metal asteroid in deep space to study the building blocks of our planet's inner space. That's the sound of NASA's Psyche mission blasting off on a Falcon Heavy rocket towards the asteroid belt between Mars and Jupiter. The spacecraft launched last Friday, heading for an asteroid also called Psyche. It's an asteroid that has a special something, something scientists haven't had a close-up look at before. The spacecraft isn't going for a weekend getaway. It will take until 2029 for it to reach the asteroid. So, though the launch was the culmination of years of work, much of the work is still around the corner for the Psyche team. David Lawrence is a principal professional staff member in the Applied Physics Laboratory at Johns Hopkins University. He's also the lead investigator for one of the instruments on the spacecraft. Hello and welcome to Quirks and Quarks. Very glad to be here and uh, to talk to you about the Psyche mission. So, how did the launch go for you? It was a thrilling experience. Uh, I've actually been in this field for over two decades, and it's the first opportunity I had to see a launch live. And uh, it was quite exciting. Had my whole family there, and so it was great to share it with uh, both the family and uh, many friends from APL. Uh, that helped on the instrument. So your, your years of work perched on the top of a huge explosive rocket, <laughs> all your eggs in one basket there. Yeah, and you just light the fuse and it goes. So that's, <laughs> that's right. How long have you been working on this project? So I think we got the first email uh, inviting us back in 2014. And the way I like to measure that is my youngest son, who's 10 years old, he was one at the time. So he thought that was pretty neat that, you know, we started on this when, you know, he couldn't remember what was going on. <laughs> well, what is so special about this asteroid Psyche? So Psyche is known as what's called an M-class asteroid or metal asteroid. And it is thought that it has higher abundances of you know, metal type elements. And, you know, that would be in contrast, just a, a type of 
standard rock you might pick up, you know, in the parking lot or something like that. Now, that's quite different from the samples that just came back from asteroid Bennu that looked like uh, charcoal. Yeah, so we think this is very different, but the challenge is the information we have from Psyche is all based on Earth-based measurements. You have radar, you have, you know, telescopic measurements, and, you know, when you're taking these measurements from far away, they're very limited. And so, you know, there's the hints, there's the thought that it's metal-rich, but we really don't know. And so, you know, that's one of the big motivations for getting a spacecraft uh, to fly, you know, go orbit the asteroid and find out for sure what is it made of? What does it look like? You know, what are the indications of what this thing really is? Nothing like going there. Exactly. Now, this mission has been described as a journey to the center of the Earth. Why is that fitting? So the idea is if it really is, you know, highly enriched in metals and, you know, it could be up to 80, 90% metal rich. Again, we don't know, it could be a lot lower. If that's the case though, uh, that's the kind of composition you expect at the core of a planetary body. And so if we go there and we find that's the case, then, you know, gosh, maybe this is something that was originally a core of a planetary body that then got disrupted and then that's all you have left. What kind of metals might you suspect would be there? Well, the basic idea is, you know, lots of iron. Uh, another thing we're really looking to uh, figure out is, is there uh, any appreciable amounts of nickel? Uh, that is, could be indicative if it is a, you know, core-like uh, material, how it might have formed. And in fact, uh, with our remote sensing measurements, uh, that we use uh, for Psyche, we've never actually uh, been on a planetary body that's had enough nickel to be detectable. And so, in fact, for this instrument, a lot of how we designed it was to make this key measurement of nickel abundances on Psyche. Now, I understand that you're the lead investigator for the gamma ray and neutron spectrometer aboard Psyche. What will that instrument do? So it measures uh, the elemental composition of uh, planetary bodies using, you know, as the name says, gamma rays and neutrons. Um, and it does this in a passive manner. So uh, the way the story goes is you have uh, galactic cosmic rays that are uh, flying throughout the solar system. These are very high energy protons. And these are interestingly created uh, through stellar explosions elsewhere in the galaxy. And so they just bathe the entire solar system. And when they end up hitting planetary surfaces that have no atmosphere, they undergo uh, nuclear reactions. They bust apart the atomic nuclei, which then produce uh, gamma rays. And gamma rays have the interesting uh, property that uh, their energy tells you what element created it. It's kind of like a fingerprint. And the number of gamma rays tells you how much of that element is there. Wow. And then neutrons are also produced through these same reactions, and they carry information about elemental composition in a more general way. And we typically fly both neutron and gamma ray detectors together to get a complete view. Why, the cosmic rays are acting like a natural particle accelerator to tell what the asteroid's made of. Absolutely. Now, the spacecraft is going to take years to get out to Psyche. Uh, when will you first get some data back from it? Uh, I 
think the spacecraft's going to uh, sort of match speeds with the asteroid in 2029. Uh, and then there will be a series of different orbits starting at high altitude going to low altitude. Uh, for our measurements, we need to be pretty close to the asteroid. And so we're thinking mid early to mid-2030 when we will start getting our data. And then we'll have about 100 days to build up all the counting statistics, as we say, uh, you know, to get precise measurements. 2030, that's a long time to wait. So what are you going to be doing during the next seven years? Well, I work on some other projects. But yeah, I mean, this is part of this. This is a weird business that we're in where the timeframes are very long, and you know, as I hinted before, you kind of measure them in the lifetime of your kids. <laughs> but you're not going to be sitting with your feet up on the table drinking coffee for all that time. Oh, no. No, we keep busy. <laughs> we keep busy. And you know, the thing is, we'll be turning the instrument on in about three weeks, and we'll be measuring the health and safety and various aspects of, of the gamma-ray neutron spectrometer throughout cruise. Now, some press coverage has mentioned the astronomical potential value of metals like nickel in an <laughs> asteroid like this. Is there interest in prospecting in space? There's certainly interest in prospecting in space. Uh, the real challenge is how do you pull that off? Psyche is itself too far to really make that a viable thing. I think you're wanting to look at near-Earth asteroids uh, for that type of work. But you know what I find exciting is there's you know, there's a lot of work going on, a lot of companies coming up. And so, you know, like I said, I've been in this field for a couple decades, but this is, this is a very exciting time right now. So, Dr. Lawrence, good luck with the mission. And if we're around in 2030, we'll catch up again and find out what Psyche is all about. Uh, thank you very much. I look forward to it. Dr. David Lawrence works in the Applied Physics Laboratory at Johns Hopkins University. He's the lead investigator for one component of NASA's Psyche mission. They may have powerful jaws, but it turns out hippos' enormous teeth aren't great at doing what most teeth do best, chew. That's something Marcus Klaus of the University of Zurich has known for years. Now, a new study from Klaus and his colleagues gives a window into why hippos chew so inefficiently and what that tells us about hippo evolution. Professor Klaus is a specialist in veterinary and comparative nutrition. Hello and welcome to our program. Hello. Thank you for having me. Now, first of all, how did you originally discover that hippos are inefficient chewers? We did a large comparative study across basically all mammalian herbivores. And in terrestrial mammals, you can use the particle size of the feces as a proxy for chewing efficiency because during the travel through the digestive tract, particle size does not change. It's after chewing, it stays the same. And while doing this, we recognized that hippos had enormously large fecal particles even larger than elephants. Wow. Now I have to ask you, how do you gather hippo feces? I mean, they're pretty mean animals and they live mostly in water. At the time, we did this based on zoo animals. So it was a very long and large collection where a doctoral student visited a lot of zoos and was collecting the feces. Evidently, not by going in with any animals, just <laughs> after the keepers had shifted them to another enclosure. Oh, but okay. luckily, because hippos are also fed on land, you also find feces lying around on land, usually in zoos. 
So how did that study of the feces lead to your new study? We were wondering why don't they chew properly and at the time we thought it was due to their large canines and we thought that the canines prevent the jaw from moving from side to side as you have in other normally chewing herbivores like horses or cattle. When you see them chewing, they chew from side to side. And the canines, those are those two big, huge teeth we see at the, at the front of their mouth? That are the, in the hippos, it's these bent, curved teeth that are particularly large from the lower jaw. They have a little bit smaller ones on the upper jaw. They are typically the ones that you think of when you think of a hippo with an open mouth. Right. So what did you see when you looked at the hippo teeth and how they work? So it's not the canines that prevent the lateral movement. The canines would only prevent that to the extent that at some lateral deviation they hit against the snout from the upper jaw. But that would still give you some lateral leeway. What actually impedes the lateral movement is the incisors. And those are, the lower incisors of hippos are teeth that are straight and stick right out of the lower jaw. And the upper incisors interlock with them in a way that the jaw cannot move laterally. Now, why is lateral movement, that back and forth, side to side movement, so important for an animal like this? It is only by grinding teeth against each other that the food between those teeth is really reduced in particle size. This is why most herbivores do that. Like you think of sideways moving a piece of carrot across a rasp, so to speak. This is how teeth gliding across each other work. Now in the hippos, they don't glide across each other. They just go hump, hump, up and down, which means they just can squeeze the stuff, but not grind it. Okay, so if the hippos can only squeeze it and not grind it, how do they break down their food? With difficulty, poorly. They do it, <laughs> to some extent it works, but it works less than in other mammalian herbivores. So what does that mean for the hippo then in terms of uh, getting nutrients out of the food if they can't grind it down? It means that they need to spend a longer time digesting the food. One of the effects of particle size reduction while chewing is that you speed up the digestion. So hippos need a long time to digest the food. And that means if you need a long time, you can't eat so much. Because if you eat more, it will push the other stuff through your gut. But if you want it to stay in there for a long time, you have a relatively low food intake. And this is why hippos cannot get as much energy in the same time period from their environment as, for example, ruminants or horses. So if, if they're eating less food and they have to digest longer, how can they still be such large animals? Being large is not a real problem because you could say the hippo has all time it needs. They're lying around in the water for half the day. <laughs> what it means is you don't get that amount of energy per time as other animals have, which most likely gives all these other groups advantages in their different niches. Think about nearly 300 different ruminant species in the world as compared to only two hippo species. So it's uh, another way to say it is that they're just inefficient eaters. I would say so, yes. 
if they are these inefficient eaters, then why do they need these huge uh, teeth and, and gigantic mouths? <laughs> so the gigantic mouth is actually a way of getting the food in within a quite short time period. They don't graze during the day. They only come out of the water at night and then go to pasture, so to speak. The big question is, why do they need those canines and especially those incisors? The incisors are useless when it comes to grazing, but they are most likely used in fighting. Hippos fight, and if you see how they open their mouths when they're doing that, it's amazing. It's nearly 180 degrees angle. And if you're fighting like that, you don't want to have a lower jaw that can give either direction. So most likely this fighting mode with the teeth that they're using for the fight leads to the fact that their jaw is relatively immobile in a lateral direction. <laughs> well, hippos certainly have a reputation for being mean and nasty, so I guess they've traded efficient eating for having fighting weapons. Ah, yes, I think you're right there. <laughs> so what does this tell us about hippo evolution? In my view, it tells us that the hippos have gone a certain way where they have, so to speak, sacrificed efficient chewing. It looks, this is where I'm not a specialist, I'm not a specialist in paleontology, but from the literature we've read, it seems that the ancestors of hippos actually had adaptations for lateral chewing, but they lost that until they came to the state where they're in now in the last extant forms. And that seems to imply to me that for these special creatures, like you said, the intraspecific fighting was more important than being an efficient chewer. Professor Klaus, thanks for your time. Thank you very much for talking to me. Professor Marcus Klaus is a specialist in veterinary and comparative nutrition at the University of Zurich in Switzerland. This is Beethoven's String Quintet in C minor, Opus 104. There's no denying the beauty of that composition, but there's nothing like hearing that piece or any classical music performed live and sharing the listening experience with other audience members. In fact, new research by Dr. Wolfgang Chalker has found that we do so much more than share what we're hearing. Even our fundamental physiology, our heartbeat, and our breathing rate start to come together. They come into synchrony with those around us. Dr. Chalker is a professor emeritus in the University Hospital of Psychiatry and Psychotherapy at the University of Bern in Switzerland. Hello and welcome to Quirks and Quarks. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Okay, so there I am sitting in a concert hall listening to a performance of Beethoven or any classical music. What's happening to my body beyond hearing music in my ears? Okay, we, we looked at the physiological responses of people listening to music, not moving very much, and uh, could distinguish between heart rate, respiration rate, and the respiration behavior, which is a different signal. And there was also uh, electrodermal activity, that is the skin conductance, which tells us something directly about the sympathetic arousal of people. 
Wow. And they were all in sync? Yes, they were all in sync. There was a, a, a pattern, a clear pattern of people becoming synchronized with respect to heart rate, respiration rate, and electrodermal activity, plus body movement. Well, take me through your experiment. What did you do to figure this out? Uh, we measured uh, those uh, signals, those physiological signals with electrodes and with sensors. And they also wore a breathing belt. And we measured whole body movement by motion capture that can be done on video recordings. So you had an audience that was willing to get wired up and what, they were sitting before uh, a performance, a live performance? Yeah, that's true. It was a string quartet. Actually, it was two different string quartets. Now, did all of your subjects uh, become synchronized this way? No, no, no. Some subjects were less synchronized than others. And uh, some of the subjects or uh, participants actually did not synchronize with the others. But th this is a statistical approach. And we looked at the amount of synchrony that occurred in the audiences, three different audiences, by the way, and uh, conducted a, a statistical test and the findings were overall highly significant. That is, highly more than just random uh, moving together or random breathing together. Now, were you able to determine why people would respond or not respond to it? Yeah. Uh, we had a, qu a personality questionnaire that was given before the, the concerts. It's the so-called Big Five. There are five personality traits that, uh, that are representative for more or less all people. And we found uh, relationships between the amount of becoming in sync of a single person and uh, his or her personality trait or predominant personality trait. For example, we found that one trait is uh, openness for experience. Those are people who are curious, who like art and unusual things. They were more in sync with the other people than when people were not had, didn't have that kind of trait. And also we found something like neuroticism, which means somebody is very, has many negative feelings, is anxious or depressed. So uh, people who had more of that neuroticistic personality trait, they became less in sync. Now, you were using classical music as the subject. Uh, what kind of response do you think would happen at a more uh, vivacious rock concert, for example? I think the effect would be much clearer because in rock concerts or pop or jazz, people are moving and they are uh, motivated to move. And uh, this is not the case in the classical, in the ritual of a classical concert. So then people sit in subdued light. They are always seated. You're not supposed to get up and dance to the music, even if it's a lively Beethoven. But this is all different in rock concerts. The motion synchrony, movement synchrony in rock concerts are much clearer. They have increased movement synchrony and therefore probably also uh, physiological synchrony. Now, what about other large gatherings uh, such as sporting events? 
this is one of the things that I'm interested in. Uh, sporting events and, of course, like carnival or military parade and such are rituals, uh, social rituals. And social rituals have one thing in common, even if they are qualitatively very different. They synchronize the viewers or the participants. And this is also instrumental, I think, in making out of single individuals a group of people who do things together. And that is synchrony. It strengthens the feeling of being part of the collective, being part of a larger uh, human system, so to speak. People marching, I mean, in parades, in military, it has the obvious effect of giving the soldiers the feeling that they are part of a whole. Mm -hmm. Do you think this is uh, an evolutionary behavior? Where do, you, where do you think it came from? Oh, yeah, I do think so. Synchrony is a biological sign, too. It has arisen by evolution. And sometimes in, in animals, there's real courtship dances. The two um, individuals synchronize with each other. And the more they do that, the more it becomes clear that they're together and they do something together. Mate. This is a, a step in mating behavior. So what can we learn from this uh, phenomenon of deep synchrony that, that you found just from people listening to music? It shows us, first of all, that the collective of an audience becomes synchronized and becomes a group that is doing something together. It comes close to what, uh, what is called embodied cognition. There is always a bidirectional interaction between the mind and the body. So if you feel well or interested, that is expressed in the body. And if the body behaves in a certain way, you have an expression of that in the mind. So bidirectional interactions between mind and body called embodiment. And that is what we also found. Dr. Chakra, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. You're welcome. Dr. Wolfgang Chalker is a professor emeritus in the University Hospital of Psychiatry and Psychotherapy at the University of Bern in Switzerland. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings, host of The Big Story. For six years now, we've been telling one story a day, every one of them about something that matters to Canadians. This spring, though, we're going deeper. The Big Story presents Pay Dirt, the inside story of Ontario's Greenbelt scandal. From political games to stag and doe parties, endangered species, RCMP investigations, and Las Vegas massages, you will hear the full story. The Big Story presents Pay Dirt. New episodes every Monday, and you can get them all by following The Big Story wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Bob McDonald, and you're listening to Quirks and Quarks on CBC Radio 1. Coming up later in the program, there's gold in them thar depths. Understanding the risks and rewards of deep sea mining. They are what we refer to as very high grade. The deposits have very high concentrations of copper and zinc and sometimes silver and sometimes gold. You're probably most familiar with cicadas from the loud buzzing courtship call of the male that dominates our hot summer nights in many parts of this country. But there are thousands of species of this insect, and one of the most curious is called the periodical cicada, found on the U.S. East Coast and Midwest. 
They spend a long adolescence buried in the soil and emerge as adults in stunning numbers every 17 years. And that, according to a new study by biologist Dr. Zoe Getman-Pickering, has an enormous impact on forests. Oh, and did I mention there's another cicada associated with the number 13? But we'll get to that. Dr. Getman Pickering, welcome to Quirks and Quarks. Thank you so much for having me on. Now, there are a number of players in this story. Let's begin with the cicada that you studied. Tell me about it. So we were researching the periodical cicadas, which, as you mentioned, are particularly fascinating because uh, in the case of Brood X, which we studied, they only come out every 17 years. And when they come out, what kind of numbers are we talking about? It's an absolute bonanza. There will be billions of cicadas. You'll have trees crawling with them. You know, we liken it to an all-you-can-eat buffet for all of the (laughs) organisms in the area. That's just incredible. Now, when, when they're not emerging by the billions, where do they hide for 17 years? So for those first 17 years of their life, they're underground as nymphs, and they'll attach themselves to tree roots and suck the sap from the trees as they very slowly develop. Are there any ideas why they emerge only every 17 years? Oh, that is a question that has fascinated scientists for decades, if not centuries. And so there's a few theories about why it takes them so long to emerge. One is that if you have billions of cicadas in only a few acres, that's a lot of pressure on the trees that they're taking sap from. And so they have to develop very slowly and suck very little sap out of the trees so that they don't kill the trees and lose their host. And then when a big emergence like these cicadas happen, the populations of their predators booms. But after 17 years, the populations of those predators has gone back down to normal levels. And so the cicadas can escape from having way too many predators around. So when was the last time that these periodical cicadas emerged? Brood X last emerged in 2021, which is when I was researching them. Okay. So... All of a sudden, billions of these cicadas appear. How did you look at what happens next? So we were really excited to figure out what happens when all of the predators that are normally eating caterpillars and plants and seeds suddenly change their diet and start eating the periodical cicadas instead. So who are the predators? We were studying birds, but there are many, many organisms that eat cicadas. Uh, People who experience the brood may have seen some very fat squirrels and rats that year, but (laughs) dogs, cats, uh, raccoons, foxes, coyotes, just about any creature that can catch cicadas will try and eat them. Okay. Well, let's, let's think about the birds. If the birds are suddenly eating cicadas, what are they not eating? The birds change their diet to focus primarily on cicadas, and the caterpillars that they normally eat were able to live their best lives and were able to uh, experience major population booms during that time. Okay, so now we've got an overpopulation of caterpillars. What effect does that have? That effect cascaded down to another trophic level, and so when the caterpillar population skyrocketed, we saw huge amounts of damage on the trees that they live on. We noticed that a lot of the oak leaves looked like lace. They were so full of holes. (laughs) How many more caterpillars are we talking about here? 
we found double the amount of caterpillars that are out there in a normal year, which is just staggering numbers of caterpillars. You know, a normal family of chickadees will eat thousands and thousands of caterpillars in a year, up to 10,000 caterpillars to raise a nest of chicks. And so imagine what did happen if every family of chickadee and crow and cedar waxwing and all these other bird species changed their diets uh, to focus on the cicadas. Wow. Now, when you say they snack on the trees, it's uh, they eat the leaves. Is that correct? The caterpillars eat the leaves, yes. So then what effect does that have on the forest? That's a great question. The, the caterpillars, as we said, doubled their population, and they did twice as much damage to the trees as they do in a normal year. And we found that that level of damage can reduce a tree's growth and it can reduce how many acorns they produce. And so we don't know exactly how this is, what the long-term consequences will be for the forest, but we know that it has the potential to shape the next generation of trees that are coming up. Now, I, I mentioned in the introduction that there's another cicada in reference to the number 13. Tell me about that one. Yes, so we have a really exciting occurrence happening in the spring of 2024, where we'll have a brood of 17-year cicadas and 13-year cicadas emerging at the same time. And this happens every 221 years. And so we expect those effects to cascade down in vastly more ways than we're able to study. <laughs> and then... Whatever does happen in 2024 won't happen again until, what, 2245? That sounds about right. 221 <laughs> years? Oof. It's a lot of pressure for the scientists to, you know, we have to get all that data as fast as we can because we're not going to get another shot at it in our lifetime. <laughs> okay, so what can we learn from this incredible cascade of events where the cicadas emerge every 17 or 13 years, they become an abundant food supply, so the birds switch to them and other animals, leaving caterpillars behind. The caterpillars increase in numbers. They eat the tree leaves. The tree leaves suffer. I mean, what, what can we learn from this incredible circle of, uh, of life here? I think that this really shows us how interconnected our ecosystems are. And I think it's really important to keep that in mind as we're facing climate change, as we're facing loss of many, many native habitats, invasive species, all of these different human-caused challenges to these ecosystems. It truly is a web of life. It really is. And it's a beautiful one and one worth protecting. Dr. Getman Pickering, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for having me on. Dr. Zoe Getman Pickering did her research at George Washington University in Washington, D.C. She's currently at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. The vast depths of the ocean floor are mysterious places full of bizarre life forms that we're really only beginning to understand. But it's also an enormous, largely untapped source of valuable resources. Mining companies in particular are interested in what could be a staggering wealth of minerals hiding in the depths. 
particularly the kind of minerals that could be useful in our transition to clean energy. What we need are base metals that we can build batteries and build the wind turbines and the solar panels so we can move away from fossil fuels and address climate change. That was Gerard Barron, the CEO of The Metals Company, a Canadian registered business, speaking with CBC's Susan Ormiston last summer. His organization wants to become one of the first companies to mine the seafloor. The area they're interested in is the Clarion-Clipperton Zone, or the CCZ. This is a 4.5 million square kilometer region between Mexico and Hawaii, where balls of metal, called nodules, lie on the ocean floor. But another great area of interest for deep-sea mining companies is at hydrothermal vents. That's where there are mineral-rich chimney-like structures over volcanic regions where two tectonic plates meet. Dr. Mark Hannington, who's a professor of economic geology at the University of Ottawa, says the two areas form metal deposits in different ways. In the old cold dead crust out in the Clarion-Clipperton zone, for example, we have manganese nodules which are forming over millions of years by the adsorption of metals out of seawater and also out of pore water in the sediments. In the active part of the ocean floor near the subduction zones where you have magmatism and high heat flow, the hydrothermal seawater is literally stripping metals out of the crust and forming metallic sulfide deposits at hot springs and black smoker vents that we're more familiar with. The end result is rich mineral deposits. Dr. Hannington. They are what we refer to as very high grade. The deposits have very high concentrations of copper and zinc and sometimes silver and sometimes gold. And on the manganese nodule side, we're talking about widely dispersed concretions uh, sitting on the seafloor with relatively low concentrations of the metals of interest. In that case, cobalt and nickel, and to a lesser extent, manganese. So two very different entities. And the distribution of them is controlled by the geological process that forms them. Despite the potential riches, the sticking point of deep sea mining, and one reason it hasn't been pursued yet, is because of the effect it could have on marine biodiversity. This is why last summer the Canadian government put an interim moratorium on deep sea mining. Here's what Natural Resources Minister Jonathan Wilkinson said about their decision. It's not no forever. Uh, it may well be that after we accumulate the science that we actually make a decision that this can be done in a certain way, perhaps in certain places, but I'm not going to prejudge that. The minerals in these areas of interest will require very different means to extract. Dr. Hannington says what they'd have to do would be particularly destructive at hydrothermal vents. If you wanted to mine them, and I'm certainly not suggesting that they will be ever, you have to break the rock exactly as you would do if you were to find these deposits on land. This is very different from the scenarios that people are suggesting for mining of nodules in the old cold part of the ocean floor because the nodules are literally sitting on the seafloor as loose potato-sized or baseball-sized concretions that can be literally picked up. There are a lot of unknowns about the potential environmental impacts of deep-sea mining. That's partly because scientists are just starting to scratch the surface in understanding deep-water life 
and the ecosystems it lives in. But we're getting closer. Last summer, scientists on an expedition to hydrothermal vents in the Pacific Ocean discovered rich ecosystems underneath hydrothermal vents that no one knew existed until now. Dr. Sabina Golnar was the co-scientific chief of that expedition and is a senior scientist at the Royal Netherlands Institute for Sea Research. Hello and welcome to our program. Hello. First of all, uh, paint me a picture of these hydrothermal vents. What's, what's it like? What's it look like? What, what, what kind of animals live there? So uh, hydrothermal vents are located on mid-ocean ridges, so in the area that we study, in around 2,500 meters water depth. And these are places uh, in the Earth, uh, on the Earth, where hot water is coming out of the Earth's crust. It's rich in minerals, uh, it has uh, toxic sulfur concentrations, low oxygen, and very special animals live that can live under these extreme conditions. And probably the most exotic ones are giant uh, tube worms that have no gut anymore. They totally depend on their bacteria and they can grow up to one, two meters in length. So they're really giant. Wow. So these, these warm water uh, vents, they're sort of like oases on the bottom of the ocean? Yes, definitely. So uh, in these ecosystems, uh, we have a lot of productivity. So microbes can use the energy of the warm water and basically make food and sugars uh, for all the animals that live there. So we do not have a lot of different species, but the ones that can make it to live there occur in really high densities. So we find basically uh, meter-high tube worms. Uh, we find a lot of associated animals also, so a lot of snails other worms. So it really thrives with life. Now, what were you planning to do to study these tube worms at the hydrothermal vents? So our idea was uh, that we wanted to know if animals basically can emerge through the cracks in the crust where the hot water is coming out. So you were looking for animals that were living within the crust itself, from within the earth and coming up into the ocean. Yes, so the idea was, so we thought that uh, animal larvae, so the small the babies of the, uh, of the large animals, uh, that they can basically travel as babies, so they're then smaller than one millimeter in size, through the cracks of the crust with the hot vent fluid. What we did not expect is what we found in reality, a whole cave system with also large animals that inhabit this uh, ecosystem type. Well, take me through that. How did you make the discovery? So uh, basically, the, the place where we uh, placed our experiments uh, was a bit tricky because part of the experiment was also to basically collect rocks to see if any new animals had settled. Uh, but this turned out to be really difficult because it was rather flat. So we kind of, during the expedition, tried many ways how we could get uh, pieces of the rock. So we would like, uh, you know, deploy like heavy weights, let them fall to try to crush the rock. Uh, we also used a small chisel. In the end, we also used a very long chisel, like a meter-long chisel, and would try basically to loosen the rock while like pushing into the cracks. And um, also what we observed during uh, our expedition is that uh, the tube worms would also stick out of these cracks. Uh, they were pretty large, these tube worms, but not so long. So we already like thought, okay, these also have to go down into the Earth's crust. So kind of this led us to the idea, yeah, we now put this chisel as deep as we can into these cracks, and then try our best to get the rocks. And basically it was then the ROV pilots that said, oh, should we try to flip this rock? And I said, yes. And this is how it went. So it's, uh, yeah. <laughs> it, it sounds like you were trying to open a giant oyster shell. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so what did you see when you flipped the rock over? 
Yeah, it was amazing. We discovered basically a, a cave system that was covered, first of all, with a lot of, you know, white bacterial mats that could use uh, the vent fluid emissions to produce uh, sugars, basically. And we found tube bombs, not only small ones, but like the largest tube bomb we have seen was like more than half a meter, probably up to a meter in length. And we have seen like hundreds and hundreds of like smaller tube bombs that would live, use the cave system to live and potentially reproduce. Uh, we could also find a lot of uh, mobile animals, like, for example, bristle worms and snails that would basically use these caves as habitat. Wow. So we really found that there's really like basically uh, the two dynamic vent habitats exist. So basically one above the surface that we have known before. And we discovered that there's also one below the surface and both linked to each other and likely depend on each other. What was that moment like for you when you opened up this whole new world of life within the Earth's crust? I still, like, if you ask this question, I still get goosebumps because it was so uh, <laughs> unexpected. That was kind of, oh, like, uh, I don't know. I was, like, everyone was so surprised and overwhelmed. And, yeah, it, it, I don't know. It's an incredible moment. It's hard to describe. I was just astonished. Yeah. <laughs> now, how extensive do you think this cave system is? Yeah, that's a good, very good question, and we do not know yet. So what is described from the geological scientists is that this kind of cave systems is common at fast and intermediate spreading uh, centers, like, for example, the place we have been on the Pacific, but also, for example, it would be similar uh, at hydrothermal vents, for example, in the Canadian waters. If we find similar things at uh, rather slow spreading ridges, so uh, where we do not know yet. So it's really a first discovery. We opened up six places and in five of them we found life. To give wow. you a bit of an idea how extensive this is around the globe, we should find out. <laughs> so what, what do these caves tell you about how the animals at these deep sea vents are getting around, what, what their lifestyles are like? Yeah, so we only knew that uh, many of the animals that live at hydrothermal vents, they are sessile, like the tube bombs, uh, so they need the larvae to basically travel from one place to the other, also to bring the babies to somewhere else, to uh, you know have also genetic exchange. But how this actually worked uh, was not clear before, because we rarely, for example, found the larvae, the babies of the tube bombs in the water column. So this like really sheds light on like you know how colonization can happen at hydrothermal vents. So. Animals can travel through these crusts. Uh, they can live there in this cave system. Hmm. Now, there are companies out there that want to mine the deep sea floor, and one of the environments they're interested in are the hydrothermal vents. So how should we think about your findings when it comes to future considerations to mine these areas? Yeah, this has pretty uh, major implications for also any potential deep sea mining. Everyone agrees that there should not be mining at active hydrothermal vents because all these tube bombs, these snails, they are so special, they are so unique, we can learn so much from them, that these small places should not be mined. The mining companies are more also interested in the minerals from inactive vents, so where there's no vent fluids. But these inactive vents and the active vents, they are connected with each other, with the subsurface. And basically now that we know that there's animal life in the subsurface, basically tells us that we should do... Uh, more research to understand where we find all this, you know, unique life that is dependent on this active uh, vent fluids. Mm. Dr. Golnar, thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much. That was Dr. Sabina Golnar from the Royal Netherlands Institute for Sea Research. Now, the other highly sought-after region for deep-sea mining companies is in the Clarion-Clipperton zone, or the CCZ. 
They're valuable balls of minerals called polymetallic nodules lie scattered on the seafloor, ripe for the plucking. In 2021, scientists from the UK explored the CCZ, and last spring, they released findings that included everything that's known about the diversity of life in this region. Dr. Muriel Rabone is the lead author of that study. She's a deep-sea ecologist from the Natural History Museum in London. Hello, Dr. Rabone. Welcome to our program. Thank you, Bob. Uh, first of all, if I was to go down to the clarion Clipperton zone in a submersible, what would I see? It may look like you might not see much to start because animals on the seafloor are rare in the clarion Clipperton zone, but they're highly diverse. There's uh, beautiful sea lilies, thought for many years to be plants rather than animals. There's a species of black coral that has recently been described on the region. Anemones, echinoderms, starfish, brittle stars, uh, sea cucumbers. There's some amazing sea cucumbers that have a transparent body. There's one called the gummy squirrel, which is one of the iconic animals of the CCZ. And it's bright orange and it has a tail that it uses to sail as locomotion as it moves along the sea floor. Hmm. Wow. So there's also rat tail fish. But a lot of the biodiversity can't be seen from a sub, for example. These are the smaller animals, smaller than two centimetres. They're living on the nodules, tiny bryozoans and corals and sponges. There's a lot of amazing sponge species in the CCZ. So there are animals living on the nodules themselves as well? Yes, yes. There's a lot of animals that live on the nodules. These are hard substrate, so they represent a very important habitat for animals in this region. It's a bit like a coral reef in that way that these nodules represent an ecosystem in and of themselves. Mm -hmm. And a lot of these animals, sessile animals like sponges, some of these grass sponges, for example, they can only attach to the nodule. Some of them can anchor into the sediment. Also species of coral and bryozoans, which are also called the moss animals, these live on the nodules. Mm. But yes, there's also a lot of animals living in the sediments, segmented worms and crustacea as well. That biodiversity is very high. Uh, how many of these animals in the deep sea are new to science? Well, our study, which was looking at all published data from the region, found over 5,000 species new to science. Wow. Which is remarkable. <laughs> but we also estimated what the overall biodiversity from the region may be and these estimates are over 6,000 to over 8,000. We often hear about the deep sea described as a desert, but what you're describing is that it seems to be really quite alive. It's the opposite of a desert. It's brimming with life. And in this area of the deep ocean, the animals are not abundant, but they are diverse. It's a bit of the other side of a coin from a hydrothermal vents, like one of these... Um, black smokers, where the animals are very abundant, but there's only a few species. So in, in these um, seabed habitats, the diversity is remarkable. Well, based on the survey you did, what are your concerns about deep sea mining in this area? Well, we found that 10% of the species from this area are known. So that leaves 90% that are new to science. But I would say for the 10% of species 
that have been described so far that we know. We really know a tiny fraction of their life history, of their functional traits. So we're really at the, the very beginnings of our knowledge of this area and what we really do need once the biodiversity has been described is to study the ecology of the area and find out what functioning these animals have in the mm. ecosystem. Well, what kind of impact could the deep sea mining have on that life? Well, animals that are living on the nodules, that will be direct habitat removal for them. So for example, in a mined area, if an entire area is mined, there won't be any habitat left for those nodule animals to live on. A lot of this animals living in the mud, the tiny crustaceans and worms and, and so on, they will also be impacted. And there will also be uh, indirect impacts as well as the direct impacts of mining, which are noise, light, and uh, sediment plumes, which are secondary impacts to the direct mm. removal of nodule and sediment. So that could be quite catastrophic, for example, mm. for filter feeders like corals, sediment plumes could clog their feeding apparatus, for example. Mm-hmm. But I would add, because there's so such unknowns about this habitat to start with, and such unknowns about the impacts, that the risk is very high. Is it possible to mitigate or minimize those impacts? Well, there's recognition that recovery within a mined area is not feasible because these nodules take millions of years to grow. One issue is that there are protected areas in the clarion Clipperton zone. These are vast areas. Most of them are situated around the outside of the mine area. But a critical point is we have very little data indeed from these areas, so we don't know if they would provide viable protection. Okay, so what's at stake here? What will we lose if we mine this without any regard to the biodiversity in the area? Well, that could be catastrophic for the species living in this region. And the issue as well is we have very little knowledge of what the impacts may be because we don't understand this region at all. The other point is we don't know what is the wider value of that biodiversity. What we lose if we mine may be of more benefit than the metals from mining. Perhaps there's bacteria in deep sea sediments that can be developed into new antibiotics or medicines from deep sea sponges. So really, we need more time to study this region. Dr. Rabon, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much, Bob. Dr. Muriel Rabone is a deep-sea ecologist from the Natural History Museum in London. And that's it for Quirks and Quarks this week. If you'd like to get in touch with us, our email is quirks at cbc.ca. Or just go to the contact link on our webpage at cbc.ca slash quirks, where you can read my latest blog or listen to our audio archives. You can also follow our podcast or get us on the CBC Listen app. It's free from the App Store or Google Play. Quirks and Quarks was produced by Leslie Amundsen, Sonia Biting, and Mark Crawley. Our senior producer is Jim Lebens. I'm Bob McDonald. Thanks for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.